Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, he's given up his office for the cause. Glad to have you with us. As today, we're going to share with you our interview of the week with Jeff Tracy. He's the king of barbecue, host of Barbecue Nation and Grilling on the Green. Both programs can be heard on our sister station, The Answer, AM 860. On Saturdays, he's on the air from about, well, 2 o'clock to 6 p.m. So you can check him out and learn everything you ever wanted to know about grilling in his two uh, two programs. <clears throat> First, we're going to take a look at some of the day's news. President uh, Trump told Fox News' Harris Faulkner in an exclusive interview aired Friday that his administration is not going to let Seattle be occupied by anarchists. But of course, right now, Seattle is occupied by anarchists. If there were more toughness, you wouldn't have this kind of devastation that you had in Minneapolis and in Seattle, he went on to say. I mean, let's see what's going on in Seattle. He was speaking to Faulkner saying, I will tell you, uh, if they don't straighten this situation out, we're going to straighten it out for them. Well, after days of protests following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Seattle police left the boarded up East Precinct building Monday night as a crowd of anti-police rioters set up barricades in the surrounding area, declaring six blocks of the city's Capitol Hill neighborhood to be autonomous and a cop-free zone. Interesting stories coming out of uh, residents and business owners in that area. More on that and the clash with Black Lives Matter, who says you have wrested the issue that this is supposed to be about from us to focus on this, uh, this issue. Anyway, the Republican National Committee has chosen Jacksonville, Florida, to host part of this summer's party convention if there be one, after largely abandoning Charlotte, North Carolina, over disagreements on coronavirus-related crowd restrictions. Well, the decision was announced yesterday, reportedly followed a nationwide search for a new host city. Business aspects of the, of the convention will still take place in North Carolina, but Jacksonville, they're going to host the celebratory aspects of the election year affair. We are thrilled to celebrate this momentous occasion in the great city of Jacksonville, that's a quote from Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chairwoman. Not only does Florida hold a special place in President Trump's heart as his home state, but it is crucial in the path to victory in 2020. We look forward to bringing this great celebration and economic boom to the Sunshine State in just a few short months. Well, the president relocated his primary residence uh, to Florida from New York last fall. And other related developments, Dr. Fauci says that Republicans, Democrats need to reserve judgment on holding the 2020 conventions. We'll see if that turns into a clash of some kind. Meanwhile, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham told Hannity on Thursday that anyone who cares about the rule of law should want him to get to the bottom of the origins of the FBI Russia investigation. Here's what I can tell you so far and for sure, that the FISA court was lied to repeatedly and that the people had a bias against Trump. He said they acted on that bias and it should never happen again. Meanwhile, the mayor of Seattle is praising the group that's taken over a chunk of the city like a character out of the Hunger Games. Mayor Jenny Durkin tweeted, The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone is not a lawless wasteland of anarchist insurrection. It is a peaceful expression of our community's collective grief and their desire to build a better world. That's a convenient way to put it. Uh, but the Seattle chief of police said uh, rapes, robberies, and all sorts of violent acts have been occurring in the area and we're not able to get to them. 
more from Seattle uh, Chief of Police Carmen Best. Leaving the precinct was not my decision. You fought for days to protect it. I asked you to stand on that line day in and day out to be pelted with projectiles, to be screamed at, threatened, and in some cases hurt. Then to have a change of course nearly two weeks in, it seems like an insult to you and our community. Ultimately, the city had other plans for the building and relented to severe public pressure. I'm angry about how this all came about. I can understand why. Mark Thiessen points out, did you notice the first thing that Chaz Enclave uh, did when it seceded, uh, when it seceded um, established uh, a border with a fence, interestingly enough? Julio Rosas has a lot of uh, video from the area you can find at townhall.com. And comments from the state governor aren't much better than the mayor. I spoke to Durkin and her team about the situation on Capitol Hill, although unpermitted, and we should uh, remember we are still in a pandemic. The area is largely peaceful. Peaceful protests are fundamentally American, and I am hopeful there will be a peaceful resolution. He's hopeful, but apparently not engaged in trying to create one. Despite the rapes and violent crime we heard about from the chief of police, we get this from CNN senior media reporter uh, Oliver Darcy. If you've been getting your news from right-wing media, you probably think armed militant Antifa activists, and by the way, they are armed, have seized a section of Seattle. But the mayor's office tells me city officials have no, uh, have not uh, interacted with armed Antifa militants at this site. Ari Freister, who was the press, uh, uh, the press leader during the Bush administration, says, now give your reaction in the Christian rights if the Christian rights seizes control of six blocks. Uh, the media and the mayor would be up in arms. Well, it probably is true that there would be a very different response. Well, Portland activists are seeking a police uh, budget um, and to have that money used for reparations. In Portland, black activists have called for stripping an additional $35 million from the police budget and using that money for reparations to people of color. Thomas Sowell says, have we reached the ultimate stage of absurdity where some people are held responsible for things that happened before they were born, while other people are not held responsible for what they themselves are doing today? Meanwhile, now they're, um, uh, they've uh, come for the abolitionist and they uh, destroyed a uh, statue of the first abolitionist in this country to oppose slavery. But apparently there is no symbol uh, that is... Uh, Exempt. Rich Lowry points out, is this real? If so, I guess the standard is that any statue of someone who looks like he is from the 18th or 19th century, regardless of who he is or his history or the contribution he may or may not have made, regardless of his politics or stance on slavery, they're a target. Former Vice President uh, Joe Biden says that the Floyd death is bigger than the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I'm going to pause for a moment just so you can let that sink in, how absurd that statement is. The death of uh, George Floyd, while unnecessary and tragic, is bigger than the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, who led a peaceful civil rights movement. Now, speaking to a group in Philadelphia on Thursday, he said even Dr. King's assassination did not have the worldwide impact of George Floyd's death. Well, Starbucks is telling its employees not to wear Black Lives Matter paraphernalia see how long that lasts. Oh, update. They've changed their minds. You can now wear Black Lives Matter paraphernalia. They had a general policy that you could not wear political symbols or statements at all. But that changed very quickly in this culture of intimidation. The Wall Street Journal says a series of awful decisions led to mass COVID-19 deaths in New York. 
From the story, the Wall Street Journal talked to nearly 90 frontline doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, hospital administrators, and government officials and reviewed emails, legal documents, and memos to analyze what went wrong. Meanwhile, Democrats who cheered the protesters are condemning the upcoming Trump gathering over COVID-19. Apparently, COVID-19 is partisan, so we need to keep our eyes and ears open on that. And celebrities put together a white guilt video, which as an African-American woman, I find unnecessary and cheap. I take responsibility for every unchecked moment, for every time it was easier to ignore than to call it out for what it was, the celebrity said, from the comfortable safety of their iron-gated homes. Uh, Every not-so-funny joke, every unfair stereotype, every blatant injustice, no matter how big or small, every time I remained silent, every time I explained away police brutality or turned a blind eye, I take responsibility. Politico says moderates are furious that that the GOP will keep conservative platforms as the uh, Democrats are turning hard left. We'll see, again, what happens with that battle over what the Republican Party will be, look like, and stand for in the future. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Jeff Tracy, the king of barbecue. He'll give us some pandemic grilling tips that might help you weather the storm, if you will. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Jeff Tracy, the cowboy cook, the king of barbecue, host of Barbecue Nation and Grilling on the Green, is with us today to talk about how to grill during a pandemic. And Jeff Tracy, I, you can't see me. I'm Jim Uflecting, but it's uh, it's a joy to have you with us today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Well, I saw you yesterday, and that made my month. So <laughs> you know, we passed each other in the hall, mask included, and it was it was marvelous to see you again. Well, it so. was marvelous to see you too. But I'd like to see the rest of your face. So I'm looking forward to when that day comes. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. What can I do for you, barbecue lady? <laughs> I thought maybe you could give us some fundamentals uh, so that when we lift the top, we lift the hood of that uh, that grill, what we see there is what we hope to find rather than the charred remains of one once living creature. <laughs> okay. Well, the so, first fundamental is this. Um, make sure your grill is uh, operational. Make sure it's clean. Yeah. Uh, make Make sure that when you lift that lid to check it, a raccoon doesn't pull it back down and say, hey, I'm sleeping in here. You know, um, if you've got the little green furry creatures, inanimate objects in that, clean off your grill, clean out the bottom, clean out the grease strap. Uh, if it's a gas grill, check the gas lines. Uh, doesn't take long to do all that. Uh, real quickly, if you want to clean it off uh, and there's no animate objects in there, just turn it on. Get it fired up and let it burn off for about uh, 20 minutes. Then you can take it and um, take your little grill brush and stuff and clean it off, and and then you're ready to go. The main thing, though, is um, when you're – if this is the first time you've used your grill, and actually Memorial Day is the biggest grilling weekend of the year, not Fourth of July, Memorial Day is. Hmm. And – you know, make sure your grill is kind of preheated and all that. Then when you select what you're going to do, let's take something like, you know, steaks or pork chops or something. Make sure all your grill zones are working fine. Uh, if it's just for two of you or three of you, four of you, for, you know, family-type uh, scenario, um, keep one side of your grill hot. Keep the, uh, another side. Most gas grills have at least three burners. 
keep one of the burners off so it's a little cooler over there. So you get your rhythm back into cooking. So if you lift that lid and something's getting a little too hot, you can move it over to a cooler side till you can adjust your heat in there. Okay. That's kind of a trick that you can use so you don't, you know, burning up a nice piece of ribeye or yeah. something that, um, you know, they don't come cheap anymore. That's for sure. Yeah. So, and, and then, you know, make sure you season them with, uh, whatever you like. And there's no reason to, Get really elaborate, Georgine, with your seasonings. Really, salt and pepper, maybe a little garlic salt, which is basically salt and garlic. You know, there's there's no mine that we found in Utah that has garlic salt in it. <laughs> so, um, you know, you can put that on there, and uh, that's a very good basic seasoning, and uh, works out really good. Make sure that internal temperature gets up to about 125 for medium rare. Uh, one thing you got to remember that that meat will um, continue to cook for a short period of time, not minutes and minutes. But you're pulling something off of a of a 400 degree grill, 450 whatever you're cooking at, and then it's still hot. So give yourself some lead weight. Don't overcook it on the grill, and then by the time it gets to the plate, it's a little more little more well done than you might yeah. like yeah. so you know p- use some use some noggin sense there and, it, and that works out pretty good and it's the same thing for grilling vegetables you know when you're going to grill vegetables or even you can grill fruit you know grilled pineapple is great just slice up some pineapple take the uh, exterior off put it on the grill let it get uh, you know, kind of warm and caramelize on one side, turn it over, do the same thing the other with the sugars, and it's it's a tremendous treat. It's really sweet. goes good with everything. So Yeah, yeah. Um, you Let know, go just back do and stuff ask like this. Go yeah. back and ask you about cleaning the grill, because I've heard different views on the subject. One is you clean the grill because it's a sanitary thing to do between grillings. The other is, you know, the more stuff that's on your grill, it flavors the meat. It somehow enhances the barbecue um, experience. Does the stuff that that's on your grill from the last five times you had the thing open, as long as we're not talking about spider webs and bugs, does that help the flavor, or should you really clean that thing? No, you should clean it. You should clean it. You don't want, you know, if you cook some uh, uh, some ahi tuna, you don't want that on your sirloin. They, they're two conflicting flavors, right? And the yeah. longer, like when when you cook fish on your grill and some people, you know, you can use a cedar plank. I'm not real fan, a big fan of that stuff, but you know, a lot of people do, that's fine. But still that, that the oils and stuff from the fish will get on there and you have to get them off or you're going to taste it again on your steak, on your chicken, on your, you know, grilled peppers, whatever you're going to do. So clean it off pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Um, you, do you suggest doing it right after you've cooked it, or it's okay to wait until you're opening the grill again, which is easier? Well, really, excuse me, the best way to do it is right after you're done with the cook. You know, go eat your go eat your meal, enjoy your company, but before you shut it down for the day, go burn it off. I just leave them on once I turn pull the whatever it is off the grill that I'm serving. I just leave them on and burning uh, until... Uh, I'm done with dinner, and then I go out and turn it off. So uh, it just it cooks it off right then, still fresh and 
call that, because you're going to get some oils, some residue, you know, some fat, all that stuff that enhances that first thing you're cooking, but not so much off the second thing you're going to be cooking two days or a week later or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So take, you know, burn it off right away, clean it off. You know, some people will say, you know, if you've got stainless steel grates on your grill, don't really worry about, like, putting a little coat of oil on them or anything like that because with this stainless steel, it's it, it doesn't really work. If you've got cast iron grates, yeah, you can put a little oil on there, just a little paper towel with a little, um, you know, like vegetable oil. Be, be careful about the oils that you choose. You know, if you're going to, like, use olive oil, that's got a very low burn point. And so that can give a kind of a burnt, nasty flavor to stuff. Peanut oil and vegetable oil, they burn at much higher temperatures. So, um, you know, that will actually do what it's intended to do, which is kind of keep the grate moist and yeah. until the next time you're going to use it. Okay? Do you have a preference between the use of coals, the old school way, and the gas grill where you have a flame that's at the turn of a switch? Not really. I use them both, uh, but I use them for two different things. The flavor you get from charcoal burning is quite unique, and it's really good. Uh, but it does take a little more time. Uh, you really have to do with, if you've got a, like a Weber kettle, for example, you know, half of it should be your your hot side, your direct heat, and then I always keep the other half of it uh for, uh, with no coals under it for indirect heat. Because uh, when you put the lid on, you know, it gets uh, that, that warm air stays right in there. So um, it's easier, it's faster to do it with gas grills. More people in this country cook with gas grills than with charcoal or pellet or wood stick, you know, anything like that. And it's, it's a matter of convenience. Um, the flavor, they're, they're pretty much the same, except I do think you get a little better flavor with charcoal. That's just my personal opinion. Um, and I'm kind of a traditionalist in some sense. So I like to do that. But the thing is, with the gas grill, you can turn it off. It'll cool off pretty fast, and you can go about your business. With the charcoal grill, you have to wait for the charcoal to kind of, you know, die out. Um, you certainly don't want to stick your hand down in there before it's time, and, uh, which I have done before, so you have no hair on your right arm or something like that, you know? Um, so uh, it just takes a little longer to do charcoal like that. And pellet grills are the same, you know? They're they're pretty much self-contained. Um, they've got a, a bin on the side that contains the pellets. There's an auger that puts them down in there, and, and most of those units now are or digital, so you can kind of get a pretty good idea of what your temperature is in the in the cook box, like that. Now, I always recommend too, and I've you and I have talked about this off air, using a good digital thermometer because mm-hmm. the thermometers that are on top of on the lids of all the different barbecues, especially after the second third season of use, they're not as exact as you would like it. So if you're thermometer on your dome lid says it's uh, 375 degrees in there. If you put a probe in there from a uh, an ancillary uh, thermometer, 
it it might not be 375. It might be 350. It might be 335. Okay, so don't use that as your temperature gauge. Use a digital thermometer and figure out what you're doing there. I want you to know I ran out and bought a digital thermometer on your advice. So I wanted to be as cool as you are. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we have the Jeff Tracy. He's the cowboy cook, the king of barbecue, host of a couple of programs. We'll let you know when and where you can hear them in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I've got my friend Jeff Tracy on the line. He's the cowboy cook, the king of barbecue. He hosts the Barbecue Nation program on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer, on Saturdays from 2 to 6, and Grilling on the Green, also on Saturdays on AM 860, The Answer. So you can hear him all day long, practically. Um, <laughs> and you're talking about how to grill well during a pandemic. Now, I thought maybe a pandemic would improve my grilling because I wasn't that good before. <laughs> I thought maybe the desperation would ooze some kind of skill, but it, it hasn't worked so far. So I like to connect with the experts and <laughs> give you an opportunity to learn something along the way uh, as well. Now, Jeff, I know for a lot of us, we're not finding the cut of meat that we would necessarily have put at the top of our list. We're, we don't have access to as much or the cuts that we might like. Any suggestions sure. on how to grill something that's a little bit less than um, our high standard and still come out with a good meal? Yeah, it, it kind of depends on, on what you're talking about, but let me give you a couple of examples. Most people, when they go to the store and they're looking in the meat case and it's, let's take beef because that's really, beef and chicken are the two biggest sellers. Yeah. Uh, you're looking at a choice cut, and they, there's um, a grading system in beef, which prime, choice, uh, select, or standard, and then utilitarian at the bottom, which is kind of what they feed prisoners in the institutions. So you, you want to stay away from that. But because of the – it's not a shortage of beef, though, Georgine. It's the processing that's got things slowed yes. down. There's, yeah. there's lots of cattle out there waiting to be processed. Uh, and we've talked about that on, on my show, Barbecue Nation, a couple of times. But um, they're doing their best to get everything back up to speed with this COVID deal and their, you know, more protection uh, between workers, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a story for a different day. But you're, you're, you're seeing cuts of beef sometimes now in the stores that are not from the same suppliers that wherever you shop, and let's just say uh, Bob's Market here, Bob may have been buying from a certain supplier for many, many years, and right now that supplier can't keep up with the pace of the demand. So they're turning and looking for other sources, and sometimes those sources are not exactly the same quality. Now, they're, they're safe to eat. Don't get me wrong there, but they may not just be graded out at the quality level that you're yeah. used to. So, you know, if you're going to buy a a chuck roast that you would normally throw in the oven on a Sunday afternoon. And when you get home from church services, you know, it's, it's ready or you put it in a crock pot and the, the you know, kind of famed Sunday uh, pot roast dinners with carrots and potatoes and that kind of stuff. If you're going to grill that, my suggestion is, is that you, you grill it like you would almost a brisket, a little lower and slower on that. Season it well, put it on there, put it on at a couple hundred degrees and let it, um, sit there. Now, you might want to put a pan 
underneath your grate if your grill will allow that. Or you could actually put your meat on a rack in a pan on the grill, okay? Because you want to keep those juices that are coming out. Yeah. That, that's what makes those really good. But I would do it a little lower and slower and then maybe sear it right at the end. Um, that's the new trendy term for the last few years is called a reverse sear. Um, I don't know. We've been doing that for years, or at least my crew has. So that's not really anything new to us, but you know, get it up to, get it up to temp, get it up to where you want, which would be in that 130, 30, 35 range. So it's really moist. Take it off, uh, take it out of the, that drip pan, um, sear it. A little bit on each side, go ahead and serve it, and it should be very tender. But you're going to have to cook it a little longer. But cooking it longer does not equate to cook it at a higher heat because then you're going to get the, the rebox that you want, don't want to chew on, you know. Yeah. Um, it's, going to, it's going to be tough. So your, your larger cuts of meat and your, uh, you know, your, your bottom rounds and different things like that that are by, by nature – Little, a uh, little more chewy, if you will. Cook them a little slower, and a little lower temperature, and that's my best advice to people like that. Now, your producer James, our buddy there, asked me about turkey burgers. Yeah, I donate them to I donate them to charity myself. But um, <laughs> if you if you really are sincere and you want to make turkey burgers, they uh, and I and I'll be honest, I don't have a tremendous amount of experience with them. Um, my daughter, when she moved back from Seattle, got on this turkey burger kick, and that lasted, oh, two days here. Um, <laughs> anyway, I would put, if, if, you, if you're trying to make a burger patty out of turkey, uh, ground turkey like that, you can add a bit of filler to it, like some um, good, you know, breadcrumbs or panko like that, maybe an egg, and, and kind of like you're making a meatloaf, but I would, I would do that, and they'll hold together together better. Um, like a regular beef burger that you would buy at the store. Yeah. And so, can I just add uh, for, for James, don't, don't leave the feathers on. I just wanted to mention that yeah. because I'm not sure he would. <laughs> I am yeah, getting absolutely. assaulted here, people. I am getting us. This is terrible. I should point out before, before people think I'm on a turkey burger kick, this is one of those situations where a substitution was made due to the ground beef being out at the time. <laughs> this was not a willing I feel purchase. For you, brother. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. But yeah, I would I would do that and you know, you can always um and I, if you know, chicken, okay. Uh chicken is not that difficult to cook. Um again, watch your temperature on that. Don't Try to put it in there at 450 degrees because you're going to have a one crispy little chickadee <laughs> on that grill, and the inside's still going to be raw. So it takes a little time to cook it. You can fuss with it, move it around uh, as you need to. Uh, if it starts to get too well done, again, go back to that, put it over on the little cooler side, and let it cook some more over there at a slower rate if you're using Low a gas slow. grill or charcoal. Yeah. yeah. And that works out pretty good. Yeah. Now, I need to take a quick break. Can you stay with us for a couple more minutes? Absolutely. Anything you All want right. here. 
All right. Hey, we're talking with Jeff Tracy. You can hear his program on our sister station. I should say programs on our sister station, AM 860, The Answer, on Saturdays. He's on the air from 2 to 6, Grilling on the Green and Barbecue Nation. Um, just a great program to learn the fundamentals and some of the you know fancier stuff, what's trending and so on. Stuff he's known for a long time, but we like to call it trending because it's new to us. Anyway, we're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, so do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I am talking to my friend Jeff Tracy. He is the man. He is the grill king, the barbecue king, the cowboy cook, and the host of Barbecue Nation and Grilling on the Green on our sister station, AM60. The answer every once in a while when we you know, used to work together at the station, he would bring something in. It didn't really matter what it was. When the word hit the crowd, uh, every one of us would get up from our chairs, rush into the kitchen and hope that there would be some scraps left. Because whatever you brought was always the best thing we'd ever had. So I miss that as much as anything else. Your little treats yeah. that you bring from time to time. Now, you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that people like to grill vegetables. And I could feel the chill mm-hmm. just come up my spine. Why on earth would you want to grill those things? But what do you do with a vegetable to grill it? Now, obviously, you can't put it just depending on the vegetable, I suppose. You can't put it right on the grill. How do you grill a vegetable? And at the end, you don't see a burnt disaster that looks like something that would have been produced by a pandemic. Um, <laughs> um, actually, it's, it's fairly simple. You know, um, like, let's take bell pepper, red peppers, yellow, green, whatever. Uh, I, I always suggest just doing red, yellow, and orange peppers because they're more colorful. You, you know, you can take them and uh, slice off the, the stem, slice them in half, clean them out, make sure you get the seeds out. Some people will put a little coat of oil on them. That's fine. And a little seasoning. Some people don't bother with the seasoning. That kind of goes to your preferred taste. But you can just put them on the grill very close to your, your protein, your meat source there, and just watch them. And they'll they'll start to cook and then turn them over. And you can get some nice grill marks if you like to see those things on them like that. Uh, I happen to like spray my vegetables when I cook them, not all of them, but most of them like peppers or asparagus or something like that. I season them and then I'll spray them with a little um, juice from a fresh orange. Now I don't go by sunny D sunny D or anything like that, but it's, I'll take an orange and cut it in half. And then I actually just kind of squeeze it on there. Gives them a bit of flavor just before you pull them off, leave that juice on there for, oh, three or four or five minutes before you pull it off. And it does ha- enhance the flavor a little bit. The other thing it does is it keeps the vegetable moist, mm-hmm. um, like like you referred to. Sometimes these vegetables, you can get them too dry. Uh, I, I happen to like to cook asparagus on the grill, and I do the same thing. I'll season it with a little garlic, put it on the grill, um, and then I put uh, do the orange juice trick at that. I also have some powdered honey that I use on occasion, and I'll just take a few pinches of powdered honey and sprinkle it around on top of the asparagus or the peppers or something like mm. that and and serve it up. But it's really just crisping the outside a little bit, and the inside is still crunchy and because I like crunchy stuff yeah. um, and, and, and do it that way. So... You know, and put that on like a medium-high heat, not very, not huge, you know. So if you were going to do it 
to a temperature, you would probably do it between, you know, 300 to 350 uh, in that range. And they'll crisp up nicely, and yet they won't get the charred black look unless you walk off and decide to go play 18 holes of golf. Then you're in trouble. But Oh, so I shouldn't do that is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, don't, you know, don't try to do them both at the same time. You know, you that it doesn't work out well. The balance is not there. So, uh, you know, you can do that. You can also do onions. You can take, like, you know, we're coming into the season where we will have some great Walla Walla sweet onions. Mm, yeah. You know, peel, peel them. Um, there's a couple ways to do it. You cut them in half and then score them with your knife. Just make little slits in them. Uh and you can put that on the grill with a bit of seasoning and then a little tab of butter on right at the end. Um, you know, you can actually cook it the side that you scored, which would be the middle of the onion, that, that flat side, if once they're cut in half. Grill that side first, flip it over, put the seasoning on it, let it cook for, you know, a bit. And that's probably going to take about, you know, 15 minutes, something like that. At that again, at that medium high heat, put a little tab of butter on it right at the end. Let that butter melt and pull it off, and man, they're really good. Oh, that sounds great. Of course, butter on anything sounds good, but that butter, really butter sounds good. good. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 into butter. You know, we like butter. <laughs> Hey, let me ask you about marinating things. Um, I've always heard that if you marinate something, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a dead pigeon. You marinate it, and it's going to be <laughs> juicy and flavorful. What are your thoughts on marinating things, and what's the purpose of it, aside from just getting the flavor of whatever's in the marinade onto the uh, the protein? Really, your last sentence there, Georgine, was the... The, the absolute basic fact. You're just getting the flavor of the marinade on the protein. The only, the chemistry behind this, let's, let's talk chemistry just for a minute. And I, and I actually passed college chemistry. Um, <laughs> salt is the only thing that will break down, uh, and go into a protein. It's the only thing that will actually be absorbed into the protein. Everything else hmm. stays on the surface. Okay, you can marinate something for three weeks, uh, and really, if you took it before you cooked it and sliced it, you'll just see a very small color change in that protein at the surface. And I mean, when I'm small, I'm talking about you need a micrometer to, to measure it. It really doesn't absorb that because the for like in beef and pork, the tissue is too dense; it can't get in there. It, it just it's made that way. It's, you know, their, their muscular physiology is a lot like ours. You know, we take a bath every day, but we don't absorb a lot of water. So, um, you know, you could certainly marinate stuff. If you want that flavor on the outside, that works. But unless you're going to do some sort of acidic based marinade that will break down the meat. And then by the time you pull it out of the marinade with your tongs, it'll probably fall apart anyway, before you put <laughs> it on the grill. So, so I'm, have- I'm not a, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, it doesn't have anything to do with tenderizing the meat. No, not none whatsoever. Really. Huh. Not really. Yeah. I'm going to impress just, my friends. It just won't. It, it, the, the, like I said, the, the biochemistry and, and the physiology won't let whatever exterior force your terse or substance won't let it absorb into there. And so it just doesn't work that the way people think. You know, but you do get the flavor on the surface. 
but you're just not going to get the flavor in the middle of that piece of, of steak or pork or whatever you're cooking. That's not going to be in the middle. It's all on the surface. So. Okay. Now, we've got Memorial Day coming up on Monday. What are you planning on grilling? Um, you know, it's I'll probably do some ribs. Uh, my family likes ribs. Um, this is actually one of the two days a year that the uh, ribs get used the most. Uh, as far as barbecues, Fourth of July is actually the biggest day for ribs of the year, but Memorial Day is right behind it. And so, um, I'll pro- I'll probably do some ribs, and you know maybe something else. I'll probably do a couple vegetables, a couple onions, or something like that. And uh, I always though, when we're having any type of gathering, even if, and now you know you're kind of limited to just family, yeah. if you will. Um, I always put some chicken lights on there because. I'm a big kid, as you know, and uh, I've, I've overgrown children's sizes, unfortunately. But the thing is, is if you've got chicken legs around, you've always got something to feed the kitties. Yeah. And I don't mean kitty cats. I mean little little people. Because they'll normally grab a chicken leg and, uh, you know, they may not like steak. They may not like ribs. They may not like. Uh, pork chop or whatever, but they'll usually eat a chicken leg. So I always have at least a dozen chicken legs cooking around. And then, you know, when they're left over, man, they are great to snack on later in the day or the next day or something like that. They're terrific. Great leftovers. Well, Jeff Tracy, I appreciate your... um your knowledge so much. Uh, I want to encourage our listeners to check you out on AM 860, The Answer, on Saturday, starting at 2. You can hear them right up until 6 o'clock in the evening on either a Barbecue Nation or Grilling on the Green. Um, Now, you mentioned that uh, on Memorial Day, you're just having family. What time should I be there then? Uh, I'd say about between 3 and 4. Okay, great, great. Be ready about 3 and 4. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because I'm, you know, I've got a couple things to do before that, but I'll be, I'll be doing the ribs. I'll put those because it takes about. Here's another little tip for your folks, real quick. You're not going to cook a rack of ribs properly in an hour. It's it takes two and a half, three hours yes. of kind of a slower method to cook a rack of ribs, and you don't want it falling off the bone because that really defeats the purpose. But cook them so they're tender. Cook them at about 210 to 225 degrees, somewhere in there. And, you know, there, season them, rub them, do all the things. You know, when you put a rub on, pat it. Don't rub it because if you rub it, it all balls up. But anyway, really quickly, it takes uh, like about two and a half hours to three hours to cook a rack of ribs. So keep that in mind. Thanks Thank for you. joining Thank us. You, Princess. Thank you, Princess. <laughs> you <too>. Your Majesty. <laughs> oh, I love that guy. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news in just a few moments. But before we do, I want to refresh you on some of the day's headlines. Well, John Bolton, the former national security advisor who left his post in 2019, claims to have documented impeachable offenses across the full 
range of President Donald Trump's foreign policy. Well, according to a press release put out by publishing giant Simon & Schuster, Bolton's soon-to-be-released book, The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, contains a thorough accounting of Trump's transgressions from the release, and I'm quoting, what Bolton saw astonished him, a president for whom getting reelected was the only thing that mattered, even if it meant endangering or weakening the nation. I'm uh, hard-pressed to identify any significant Trump decision during my tenure that wasn't driven by re-election calculations, he writes. In fact, he argues that the House committed impeachable uh, malpractice, impeachment malpractice by keeping their prosecution focused narrowly on Ukraine when Trump's Ukraine-like transgressions existed across the full range of his foreign policy. And Bolton documents exactly what those were and attempts by him and others in the administration to raise the alarm about them. Well, the White House has reportedly tried to pull out all the stops to keep Bolton's book from being released, claiming that Bolton is uh, divulging classic, uh, classified information. But Simon & Schuster says the book will be out on the 23rd of June nonetheless. In the months leading up to the publication of The Room Where It Happened, Bolton worked in cooperation with the National Security Council to incorporate changes to the text that addressed the NSC concerns, Simon & Schuster said in the release. The final published version of this book reflects those changes, and Simon & Schuster is fully supportive of Ambassador Bolton's First Amendment right to tell the story of his time in the Trump White House. So that bombshell is set to be released on the 23rd of June. A little closer to home, Governor Kate Brown announced uh, last night that she has uh, put all applications for further reopening across the state on hold for at least seven days after seeing a concerning increase in coronavirus infections. That means Multnomah County has not yet been approved for phase one, which was to begin today. The announcement came on the night many Portlanders had hoped to receive news of a phase one reopening in Multnomah County, the last of the state's 36 counties to loosen restrictions. In order to ensure that the virus is not spreading too quickly, I am putting all county applications for further reopening on hold for seven days, she said in a statement that was released last night at about 7.15. This is essentially a statewide yellow light. It is time to press pause for one week before any further reopening. Well, the governor said she hoped the seven-day hiatus will give public health officials time to investigate what has caused the increases and whether her reopening plans should be adjusted. I will work with doctors and public health experts, she said, to determine whether to lift this pause or extend it or make other adjustments. Oregon recorded another all-time high in COVID-19 infections reported in a single day on Thursday with 178 cases, which brought the state's total to 5,237. Two more Oregonians died from the virus, bringing Oregon's death toll to 171. Well, the increases have been seen across the state, and the number of hospitalizations are also on the rise, according to state data. Oregon Health Authority officials, they weigh reopening decisions on several metrics, including a declining prevalence of coronavirus and a 14-day decline in hospitalizations, as well as counties' ability to provide adequate testing, hospital capacity, personal protection equipment, and isolation facilities and contact tracers. So, another week on hold. The Oregon Supreme Court today ordered a Baker County judge to throw out a preliminary injunction that found Governor Kate Brown's executive stay-at-home, save-lives orders invalid. Circuit Judge Matthew B. Shirtcliffe ruled on the 18th of May that the governor's executive orders in response to the pandemic exceeded a 28-day limit adopted by state lawmakers and were no longer valid. 
His decision came in response to a suit filed by 10 churches, the nonprofit Pacific Justice Institute, and 21 others against the governor. Within hours of Shirtcliffe's ruling, the governor's office appealed to the Oregon Supreme Court to keep Brown's emergency orders in place, arguing that Shirtcliffe overstepped his authority and his legal reasoning was flawed. That night, the court put on hold the injunction. Well, on Friday, the state's high court issued what's called a uh, preemptory writ of uh, mandamus vacating Shirtcliffe's injunction. The Supreme Court found that Shirtcliffe relied on the wrong state law in issuing an injunction. Shirtcliffe had pointed to the Public Health Emergency Statute, ORS 433441, in finding that the governor's executive order had violated the 28-day statutory limit. As the state had uh, argued, Brown relied on a different statute, I won't even bother giving the numbers, allowing her to declare a state emergency for reasons including public health emergencies and doesn't have any time limit the state's high court found. Now, the legislature had expressed, uh, expressly provided that the powers granted to, in the governor, uh, to the governor rather, by ORS 401-165, which is the statute she used, uh, shall continue until termination of the state of emergency. The court noted either the governor or the legislature may halt the state of emergency according to state law. There have been and will continue to be debates about how best to respond to the threat posed by the coronavirus, the opinion said. Those debates include debates about what balance the government should strike between protecting lives and protecting liberties to the extent that those debates continue policy choices or rather Concern policy uh, choices, they are properly for policymakers. The court did not review the church's allegations that the governor's orders infringed on their religious freedoms. The ruling was issued in a per um, curiam uh, opinion, meaning it was issued as uh, the court, not signed by one judge. That's fairly unusual, but may indicate a united front, according to Steve Cantor, a retired law professor and dean emeritus at Lewis and Clark Law School. And Portland City Council failed to agree unanimously on Thursday on a new version of the city budget, which called for a uh, more than $15 million cut to planned um, uh, police spending and eliminating over 80 police positions. Commissioner Chloe Udaly uh, voted on voted no rather on adopting the $5.6 billion budget, saying she could not support a plan that felt well short of recent public demands to cut as much as $50 million from the police uh, proposed $244.6 million budget. Uh, Mayor uh, Ted Wheeler then voted no as a technicality to buy the council time to reconsider the budget and needed unanimous support from the current four-member council to pass Thursday. Uh, Commissioners Joanne Hardesty and Amanda Fritz voted yes. The earliest the city council can vote again to adopt the budget is uh, next Wednesday. It would need at least three votes to pass then. The next fiscal year begins the 1st of July. Udaly said the uh, vote reminded her of regrets over voting yes on the city's budget in 2018, which called for uh, um, increased public uh, police funding. She said while she agreed with the changes to police spending her fellow commissioners made Thursday, she didn't believe they went far enough and that members of the public deserved better. That vote is yet to come. Meanwhile, protesters inside the self-declared autonomous zone in downtown Seattle booed and heckled members of the African-American Community Advisory Council Thursday afternoon as the group told demonstrators they had hijacked the message of Black Lives Matter, which, of course, they have. 
The council works to foster relationships between the Seattle Police Department and the community, a necessary liaison, particularly in the climate mounting tensions against police following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The thing is, you have hijacked this. You have taken the meaning away, a woman from the council said, addressing demonstrators inside the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, a six-block region which includes a police precinct that had been taken over by protesters. After weeks of protests, Seattle demonstrators successfully ousted uh, police officers from the East Precinct, forcing them to shutter the building and leave, and attempts at negotiating a police present have been unsuccessful. Black lives do matter, but there are also black lives that are police lives, a woman from the council said, according to a report from Como News. They feel the same way that you do. The woman who uh, was moved and the demonstrators grabbed other microphones that began talking over her because, God forbid, they would be triggered by hearing an opinion that is contrary to their own. <clears throat> well, the chairman... Victoria Beach lambasted the city's mayor, Jenny Durkin, calling her cowardly for opening up the streets to all the mayhem, she told the local news outlet. And the uh, battle lines are drawn. The conflict continues. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break. But when we come back, I'll be joined by James Blend, and we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is joining me. We're taking a look at the lighter side of the news. James, how are you faring as you are sheltering in place? And I think you reminded me this is the 12th week. Yeah, I think next week's going to be week 13 from our various bunkers, as it were, around the Portland metro area. Um, this is always one, the toughest day for me uh, because uh, yesterday uh, was my day, my turn to go in and uh, do... Uh, some stuff at the station physically and run a show there or two. We recorded the show. Uh, you were still in pl- sheltered in place, but I was at the studio. Um, and uh, you know, the the next day when you're back in the home studio, it's it's not quite as it's not quite as fun. <laughs> yeah, there are some challenges with working from home, but we're trying to make it work. And so far, I think we've done okay. The, the human interaction was nice. Getting to see a couple of coworkers that are that are forced to work through this from the office. Um, they all say hi, by the way. But, oh, um, you. you know, the uh, it, it's kind of uh, a, a, an interesting atmosphere even there. But uh, these are the struggles. But it's I'll be honest, it's a lot easier when you don't have something to compare it to. Yeah, that's probably true. You know, people are uh, on edge. We've been sheltering in places, you pointed out, for about 12 weeks. Some people more, some less. Uh, one man was so, I don't know, so upset by life in general that he was charged with assault after throwing a pickle from his moving vehicle and hitting a worker. This man was in Massachusetts, and he's actually facing an assault charge after he allegedly threw this large pickle from a moving vehicle and hit a Vermont highway worker, according to police. The incident occurred at about 6 p.m. in the evening on uh, uh, a highway. A passenger in the southbound vehicle threw the object, later determined to be a large pickle, that hit the highway worker and caused him pain. I'm not sure how much pain a pickle can cause, but it was enough that uh, the individual was charged with assault. The Agency of Transportation Officials provided a description of the vehicle to police, which led officers to the suspect, um, and they uh, tracked the individual down. 34-year-old from Williamstown was cited um, in court, had to show up in court, threw a pickle out the window, had to go to court uh, anyway to answer the charge of simple assault. So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, let's just try to keep it together. He got himself in a considerable pickle and had to show up in uh, in court. Yep. What on then earth had, made then, him throw then he had a pickle? A, then he had to deal with it. 
What made him throw a pickle from a moving vehicle? I don't know. You know, the only thing that, that when you told that story, the, the, the scene, the movie scene that popped into my mind actually was from the, uh, the old Robin Williams movie, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. Uh, where uh, they're on vacation and uh, Robin Williams' character uh, throws a, uh, a fruit at Pierce Brosnan, who's trying to, uh, you know, basically walk off with his ex-wife and he's jealous and, uh, and immediately Pierce Brosnan looks over and is an innocent old woman. Oh, I don't know where it's come from. It was a drive-by fruiting. And that's, <laughs> I do remember that's that scene. The, dr- the drive-by fruiting. As soon as you said the pickle thing, I'm like, it was a drive-by fruiting. <laughs> yes, and this individual, however, was charged with assault. So let's all take a deep breath and just keep our pickles to ourselves. Exactly. Could mosquito saliva lead to the holy grail of vaccines? Now, I've often heard people say, what on earth was God's intention in creating mosquitoes? They serve no earthly purpose. Well, this could be it. Mosquito saliva could lead to a vaccine. Now, the thing that sort of amuses me is the thought of someone pinning down a mosquito and trying to extract the saliva from it. Um, Anyway, looking beyond the search for a malaria vaccine, one team of researchers is testing whether a vaccine made of mosquito spit proteins can invoke an immune response, which could in turn protect against all mosquito-borne pathogens. The results from a phase one uh, trial showed a form of the vaccine was safe and triggered an antibody response in recipients. I'm I'm allergic to mosquito bites. I don't obviously have the... uh, concern of malaria here in the U.S., but mosquito bites for me, I'm allergic, and they create uh, quite a problem on my limbs as I try to deal with it. But the study tested for immune response to mosquito spit proteins, but it did not involve pathogens, according to Reuters. Therefore, additional trials are needed to determine the effect of the mosquito spit vaccine against pathogens. Findings were published on Thursday for those of you who want to follow up in The Lancet. Dr. Jessica Manning oversees clinical research for the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, kind of like Dr. Fauci, and her colleagues led that study. So there you have it. Well, Why but- on earth did God create mosquitoes? Well, perhaps their saliva will lead to the holy grail of vaccines battling uh, malaria and perhaps just mosquito bites in general. The, uh, the most amazing part is, of course, in the process, they accidentally recreated dinosaurs. <laughs> so, you know that was uh, sorry yeah. Jurassic Park reference there for those who missed it, but uh, that that I believe that's how they recreated the dinosaurs. They extracted uh, frozen uh, DNA from a uh, what fossilized mosquitoes or something. And it's like uh, yeah, so mosquitoes apparently have two purposes: recreating the dinosaurs <laughs> and curing malaria. <laughs> and that's, I'm wondering that's, if any that's two more purposes than the murder hornet. I might add. <laughs> Two That's more true. purposes than the murder hornet. That is true. I wonder if uh, mosquitoes were harmed in the process of extracting their saliva, and if there'll be a disclaimer before PETA shows up. People for the ethical the treatment of mosquitoes. them. <laughs> there you go. Well, wearing masks is um, a bit of a challenge. I find it very difficult to breathe. My own hot air being trapped in that mask is something of a challenge, but I wear it faithfully out of concern for others. Um, but there are some positions that make it more difficult to wear a mask um, and do your work. Picking roses is a lot nicer when you can smell them, according to some French perfume 
uh, I think they're parfumers. Uh, May roses are blooming in grass, uh, the birthplace of French perfumes. Uh, but out of the fields, some of those who pick them face a problem this year. Working with a mask and not smelling the flowers is pretty frustrating, says one horticulturalist. Um, owner of the Domaine de something like that, which works with the uh, Dior Fashion House, uh, says nonetheless, she told her seasonal workers they must wear a mask owing to the risk of catching coronavirus. Uh, so they're out in the fields picking roses, fragrant, beautiful, lovely roses, but doing so wearing masks. Now, that would be a challenge. What if we had to wear masks while we did, uh, while we did radio? That you know, that would be a little bit weird. I mean, I, I of course have seen, um, especially with the uh, um, the events in downtown Portland and such, seen plenty of like reporters using masks, um, and certainly they sound mildly muffled. And that would be the weirdest part, I think, for me, is, is especially because part of my job is to try and keep audio sounding good, to try and figure out a way around the muffled sound that really there's no way around. It would be tough. Yeah. But they're doing it anyway. They're picking the roses and apparently bringing them in to where they can be, well, actually enjoyed. And uh, whatever they use to make parfum uh, can be extracted uh, from it. So after two months of confinement marked by a resounding silence broken only by buzzing bees, the gathering of rose petals began over a week ago and continues, depending on the weather, under um, extra sanitary uh, precautions normally everyone grabs a smock they help each other out and go down the rows facing each other they chat it's rather nice they say oh this year each worker has a separate row starting at 9 a.m in the morning stopping at 1 p.m when the sun gets too hot the roses temperature and chemistry are paramount criteria in gathering uh, these uh, beauties we are timed the rose has uh, odor molecules molecules rather that work at certain hours explains one of the uh, 26 young workers. Um, They add that they must also demonstrate rapidity, dexterity, and delicacy. You must pluck without breaking buds um, that will flower in the coming days. So you could be uh, out in the fields plucking flowers all by yourself to try to make parfum in France. So see, you don't have it so bad. No, no, I don't. One South African leader had to poke fun of himself after a viral face mask fumble showed up online. I think we've all had that moment where we're trying to put our masks on, and it's just a challenge to do so. This is South Africa's president. On Friday, poked fun at himself for clumsily fumbling with his face mask during a televised speech, a move that attracted widespread laughter on social media. The president awkwardly pulled a colorful fabric mask over his eyes, After announcing an uh, easing of uh, lockdown restrictions on Thursday night, prompting instant reactions on Twitter, the hashtag face mask challenge uh, were uh, trending on Friday as South Africans uh, humored their uh, president by posting captioned images of him and pictures of themselves in impromptu face coverings. So uh, it's good to laugh at yourself. Um, In fact, the the president said, I don't think Mr. President will... uh, um, I I should say one observer said, I don't think Mr. President will mind. Um, We have more than enough sulk moments. Let's laugh just a little. So the president, Ramaphosa, has called on all South Africans to wear face masks as the lockdown is set to be gradually phased out. Um, But for now, got to keep those faces covered. I miss the bottom half of my neighbor's faces, but uh, we'll get to see them again, we hope. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. We being me and, you know, Jimmy. Stay with us. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind has joined me. We're just running down some of the uh, lighter side of the news stories from the last few days. You know, people are pretty bored, and so they're trying to come up with stuff to do. Well, one 12-year-old dog trainer from Germany has earned a Guinness World Record for teaching her dogs how to do a conga line. Alexa Lorenberger has trained eight of her dogs to form a conga line, a feat that she um, that has won her the Guinness title for most dogs in a conga line. Imagine that. That's the title, most dogs in a conga line, for teaching her dogs to do the conga. Well, the conga is a Latin American dance in which one person stands behind the other to form a chain. To achieve the record, Alexis and her dogs, I should say, Emma, Jennifer, Katie, Maya, Nala, Sabrina, Sally, and Specky, formed a conga line in front of a Guinness adjudicator. The first dog in the line, Sally, leaning on Alexa, had to cover a minimum distance of 16.5 feet in conga formation, while the others had to maintain paw-to-back contact with the dog in front for the duration. The dogs aced the challenge and how. Well, on Wednesday, Guinness World Records took a social media took two social media, I should say, to share a video of Alexa and her dogs forming the record-setting conga line. The video has delighted thousands of people, 1.4 million to be more precise, um, over 700 times on Facebook, collecting a ton of amazing reactions. Wow, well-trained dogs. That's one of the amazing reactions. Listen to the latest songs while dogs are congaing, congaing, congregating. I'm not sure how you refer to that. Though she's all of uh, 12 years old, Alexa Lorenberger has already won Das, let's see, Super Talent, a German talent hunt reality show. She's also appeared on America's Got Talent where her performance delighted judges. I don't know what she did. I can only tell you what her dogs did to win the Guinness World Record for most dogs in a conga line. I mean, what else does she have to look forward to now, this 12-year-old? She's reached the top, the pinnacle. There's nowhere to go from here. I mean, it's, I mean, I I think it's time to think about retirement. It's time to think about just packing it in. I mean, everything from here is just going to be a disappointment. Yeah, I'm thinking she probably needs to go on the uh, lecture series where she can be a motivational speaker and tell other people how they can motivate themselves and their pets to do things that the pets are not even remotely interested in doing. So I mean, she she can schedule that TED Talk with Greta. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Well, knitters from around the world submitted 79,001 yarn flags for an attempt to set a Guinness World Record for the world's largest knitted bunting. British organizers of the effort said 79,001 flags. Um, The chief steward for crafts and gardens with the Devon County Show came up with the idea for the record attempt last year and put out an appeal for knitters around the world to send in flags to be strong, strung together. Rather, The flags were combined at West Point Arena in Exeter. The original intention was to display the bunting at the Devon County Show, which had been planned for, for August, but of course was canceled due to COVID-19. Well, organizers said it will instead remain in West Point Arena until September and the public will be allowed to view it on designated evenings. Well, the bunting includes a total of 79,001 flags and stretches about 8.9 miles. The previous record for bunting was 31,119 flags, and that only stretched to 4.7. So this is practically uh, twice as long. 
Organizers said um, documentation is being submitted to Guinness for official certification. So there you have it, the longest strung series of flags or bunting. That's a lot of time, a lot of yarn. For app. I mean, what do you do with it once you set the record? What do you do with that? A uh, bunch of yarn knitted? Um, I mean, maybe make COVID masks for Alyssa Milano, but apart from that, I can't think of anything. <laughs> well, something to think about. Well, like the divine winged steed Pegasus, a miniature service and support horse named Fred, not quite as alluring, Fred, has taken to the skies. Fred was specifically trained by his handler to join her aboard an American Airlines flight from Michigan, dressed in an outfit befitting a budget superhero film and with a travel bag strapped to his body. Well, the pair flew from Grand Rapids to Dallas, Texas, from where they grabbed a connecting flight to Ontario, California. And while others have struggled to convince U.S. airlines to allow them to board with peacocks and hamsters, Miss Frost, the owner of the dog, said staff were all too happy to have Fred on board, and he even got to travel first class. Now, my guess is they were happy to have him on board because they're happy to have anybody or anything on board right about now. I mean, after all, who's flying? In a gushing Facebook post, Miss Frost, she thanked the pilots, the co-pilots, the crew on all four outbound and return flights, saying their excitement to have a legit service horse on board was a breath of fresh air. Again, they were probably the only two on the flight. She added their kindness and comments about how well-behaved Fred was made me the proudest mommy, handler, and trainer ever. They were all super respectful. I don't get the owner of a pet referring to um, their pet as their son or daughter. She referred to the miniature horse, um, to herself in relation to the miniature horse, as mommy. And I don't get that. I'm happy she had a good tip, but uh, that's about the extent of it. Now, what would you do if you were on a flight and a miniature horse joined you on that flight in the cabin? Well, Georgine, I think it's been well documented on these airwaves of my feelings of horses. Miniature horses as well? Well, I mean, okay, here's the, here's my question for you. As a great lover of dogs that you are, how do you, how do you feel in difference to a German Shepherd to a Chihuahua? There's no difference. Thank you. I think you've answered your own question. <laughs> yeah, I think I have. I got you. Each new generation of parents are faced with a unique set of challenges that their parents before them never encountered. Times change and society evolves. That's certainly nothing new. However, a recent survey of 1,772 British parents finds that many may be doing their children a serious disservice, all in the name of potential social media followers, or at least for a minute or two. In all, 7% of respondents say they've already given their baby a made-up name, and 65% are at least willing to consider such a move for that moment in the spotlight. A few examples of these new age baby names include Jaspin, Elisabel, Renlo, and Mavery. Don't see any names you like? Well, how about Toven and Evabeth? Well, even if they themselves aren't willing to choose such a name, a staggering 94% of respondents admitted that made-up baby names are very much in these days. Apparently, these parents believe that they're helping their kids by selecting an odd name. Now, the survey commissioned by Chanel Mum 
noted that 72% of all respondents believe a unique name will help their child stand out from the crowd, which is probably not what most kids want when they're growing up. Now, once they become an adult, they may think, oh, yeah, this is really cool, but other kids have ways of making fun of other kids' names. Well, another one in um, 50 chose a made-up name for their baby with social media in mind. A more unique name means their child's social media account in the future will be that much easier for potential followers to find. Wow. Now, when you named your daughter, were you thinking, if we choose this name, will it be uh, easier for people to follow her on social media? You know, oddly enough, it didn't actually strike uh, strike <laughs> a, a thought with me whatsoever. I mean, obviously, when, when Verity was born you know, a little over five years ago now, it wasn't quite the thing to be, you know, an influencer, perhaps, that it is today. Um, I mean, they certainly still existed, but they weren't uh, quite on the map as they are. But, uh, no, I mean, actually, the original plan was we would not, uh, the, the, the joking line for our criteria was, if the name is not available on a keychain at Disneyland, we're not going to name our child that. <laughs> and that comes from a, uh, having a wife whose spelling of her name is pretty unique and so she was never able to get a keychain with her name on it from disneyland yeah i could never um, get a keychain a banner a t-shirt yeah same with me you know of course i've since pointed out since we did name her verity that it's so much easier now to get custom items made on on the fly the technology has advanced and you could go in and get a keychain and have the name put on it right there so we're okay but uh <laughs> you know it certainly the the rarity of the name didn't uh it, was actually a deterrent a little bit because uh, we just are liking the name over wrote it. Yeah, yeah. The question now is, are these parents really thinking about their children's own good or themselves? We'll leave that an open question because we need to take a break. But, uh, I don't know, Toven, Evabeth, um, Renlo, Elizabeth, Mavery. Something to think about. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for our final segment of The Georgine Rice Show, the Friday edition. James Blend is uh, joining me. We were talking about baby names in a survey that came out of the UK. Well, James and David, Silas and Obadiah, they are um, uh, trending names, or actually. Silas and Obadiah are trending, James and David, not so much, in terms of baby names that are chosen from the Bible. And yeah, people do still choose their uh, children's names from the Bible. Now, you, James, were you chosen because of a family member, or do you know if this was related to the the uh, figure in the Bible by the same name, the brother of Jesus? Um, it is a family name, as my father is named James, and uh, he was named after his godfather, my uh who we referred to, who is not a family member but a close family friend, Uncle Ted, um, whose first name was actually James. He was other that helps make that make sense. But um, so basically, my grandfather named him after made my dad after his best friend, and I was named after my dad. Ah, quite interesting. Well, you probably know somebody who's given their child and especially their baby boy an obscure biblical name. Um, Oprah was actually Orpha was the correct name in the scriptures, but she was named after. Uh, that in the scriptures. Well, Sunday schools are increasingly filled with boys named Asher, Silas, Hezekiah, and Ezra. Meanwhile, boy name, boys' names rather like John and Michael, David, and James appear to be falling out of favor. Sorry, James. 
The numbers back up um, this perception. According to current data from the Social Security Administration, unusual biblical names are getting more common for baby boys with historically rare Bible names, rising from 0.5% of boys in the 1950s to a whopping 6.5% of baby boys today. So that's uh, that's pretty interesting. Of all baby boys given uncommon, unconventional names, 17% had uncommon biblical names, the higher share since um, 1880. So how do you feel about that, James? Are you feeling a little um, upset about it, or what are, you, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, I know that my parents had briefly considered, uh, you know, Melchizedek as a name for me, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. they, fear, they were fearful that you might not live up to that. Exactly. I, I, I Everyone would have just called me Mel, I'm sure, for short, but, uh, you know. How about Malchius? Oh, there is that. I mean, you know, the Zephaniah, you know, all the different, you know. I wish they had named you Zephaniah, because then when I'm I'm upset, it would have been much easier to call you out. Zephaniah, get in here. Huh? 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 You know, the problem is if you yell, you know, if you decide to abbreviate, yo, Zeph, people are going to be like, Gazettite. Um, so, I mean, you know, there are, there are those that, you know, there, there are probably, so, you know, much of the Bible needs to come to life today, but there are certain things in the Bible that need to stay in the Bible. Some of them are the names. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you picked out your baby name next to the word begat, you might have gone a little too far. Just saying. <laughs> Something to consider or perhaps reconsider. I want to break in and give you the latest numbers. Oregon's health authority is reporting two new COVID-19 deaths in the state of Oregon and 142 additional cases. This is being reported, uh, my sources, KPTV, but you can also go to the Oregon Health Authority's website. They reported two new deaths, 142 more cases of COVID-19 in the state as of today. The total number of deaths in Oregon from the virus is now 173. The deaths reported on Friday were a 96-year-old man in Washington County who tested positive on the 10th of May, died on Thursday at his home, and a 68-year-old man in Multnomah County who tested positive on the 1st of June and died on Wednesday at a hospital. Um, The Oregon Health Authority said the Washington County man did not have underlying medical conditions. Uh, The Multnomah County man did... uh, uh, did have have uh, underlying conditions. The 142 confirmed cases and presumptive cases were in uh, Clackamas County at 9, Multnomah County at 36, Marion at 29, Washington County 21, and then, of course, several others with much lower numbers. The health authority said two cases previously reported in Jefferson County were determined not to be cases, and the total case count for the county has been adjusted. And this, as the governor has put a pause on allowing states to um, uh, move into either phase one, which was the case for Multnomah County alone, or to um, uh, to move into phase two, as is the case for most counties across the state. So those are the latest the latest numbers. Well, a bronze chest filled with gold, jewels, and other valuables worth more than a million dollars and hidden a decade ago somewhere in the Rocky Mountain wilderness has been found. That's according to a famed art and antiquities collector who created the treasure hunt. Forrest Fenn, 89, told the Santa Fe, New Mexico News, 
on Sunday that a man who did not want his name released for reasons one can imagine, but was from back east, located the chest a few days ago, and the discovery was confirmed by a photograph the man sent him. It was under a canopy of stars in the lush forested vegetation of the Rocky Mountains and had not moved from that spot where he had put it some 10 years earlier, Finn said in a statement. On his website Sunday, that still did not reveal the exact location. I do not know the person who found it, but the poem in my book led him to the precise spot. Finn posted clues to the treasure's whereabouts online and in a 24-line poem that was published in 2010 in his autobiography, The Thrill of the Chase. Hundreds of thousands have hunted in vain across the remote corners of the U.S. West for the bronze chest believed to be filled with gold coins, jewelry, and other valuable items. Many quit their jobs to dedicate themselves to the search. Others depleted their life savings. Oh, my goodness. At least four people died searching for it. Uh, Finn, who lives in Santa Fe, said he packed and repacked his treasure chest for more than a decade, sprinkling in gold dust and added hundreds of rare gold coins and gold nuggets. It has now been found, but at great cost, sad to say. Now, you weren't among the treasure hunters, were you, James? Not that you know of. No, not admitting anything, eh? I cannot confirm nor deny that I'm Well, 10 gold. years. <laughs> 10 years, that's how long people looked for it. But this man waited 42 years um, before he paid off a ticket. This is in Maine. It was a parking ticket uh, from Long Sand Beach, and nearly 42 years ago it was issued. Well, uh, Gary Ergonski, he mailed a letter, and the ticket from... Uh, July 28, 1978, and a $4 check, $3 for the fine, $1 for the late $1 for the late fee to the York Police Department, the Portsmouth Herald reported. The letter read in part, I hope I can now safely travel through the state of Maine without always looking in my rearview mirror. Well, the Massachusetts resident um, said he uh, he's sure he deserved the ticket at the time and intended to pay it, but forgot about it over the years and, well, just got around to it this week. Well, we're just about out of time, and our week is drawing to a close. I couldn't end the program without saying happy birthday to my dearest sister, who was born a year and six days after me. Today is her birthday, so happy birthday, Donna Ray. Love you to pieces, as you well know. Also want to thank James Blend for uh, producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us right here on Monday as we're sheltering in place and bring you the latest news and headlines. Hey, and thanks for joining us, James. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.